Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We waited and waited. We even delayed recording this podcast by 24 hours. But still, Sue Gray did not publish her report. Maybe she will have done by the time you've listened to this podcast. Maybe the Met Police will have forced the excision of everything interesting in it. But for now, like the country and the Prime Minister, we just keep waiting. So this week, we're going to begin by looking beyond Westminster, one and a half thousand miles beyond, in fact, to the global waiting game. Will President Putin invade Ukraine? Russian troops are gathering on the border. NATO forces are in place as well. So what happens next? What's the UK's position? And let me pose the question that links this with the drama in Westminster. Are these both aspects of defending our democracy and our values? We'll then catch up on the Sue Gray report latest. Where is it and what's going on? And finally, COVID is on the retreat. Normal life is resuming. Or is it? We'll take a brief look at what comes next. I'm delighted to have with me two regular voices on the IFG podcast, Alex Thomas, Programme Director and former Senior Civil Servant. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bromley. I'm Kath Haddon, Senior Fellow dealing with many questions of the Constitution and standards in public life. Hi, Kath. Hi, Bronwyn. I'm also delighted that we're joined by Sir Lawrence Friedman, Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College, London. Lawrence, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Let's start with Ukraine. Lawrence, how serious is the situation? It's serious because we've had a building up crisis for a while. Uh, The Russians have moved lots of troops close to the border. They're still moving them. Uh, They've moved now into Belarus. The rhetoric has been uh, quite blustery, quite excitable. They've managed to convince a large number of analysts, including in the American and British governments, that they may well be planning uh, not just a sort of a uh, what Biden called a minor incursion or even a modest incursion, but a full-blown invasion of Ukraine. I think there are reasons for scepticism as to whether or not this will happen. An argument I seem to be having with lots of people is when I explain the reasons why this would be a really stupid thing for the Russians to try to do, to in a sense, conquer a country of 40 million people who don't like them already and have got a history of fighting back. They say, yes, but, but, but you know, Putin's got his own crazy notions and so you can't tell. And crises have a dynamic all of their own. So I think we're in a situation where the Russians have set demands which they know are probably completely unrealistic, which these have been rebuffed by NATO. But also we've seen the glimmerings of a diplomatic way out, largely by uh, reviving the uh, Normandy process, which has sent the direct talks to try to resolve the conflict in eastern Ukraine. So I think there's a way out, but you can't have that many troops, that much uh, rhetoric going on without a risk of, of something happening that could, even if you know the Russians decide there's been some inflammatory provocation from the Ukrainian side. Uh, so there's a risk here, but I, I, I'm not wholly convinced we're on the verge of a major war. I guess that's reassuring. Is it possible to say what President Putin wants out of this. You presumably don't agree with the, the person you're quoting saying it's, it's, it, he's crazy. Well, I, I mean, I don't think he's crazy. He, he, he's, a, uh, he's bold, he can take risks, but he tends to take calculating risks. At a minimum, he, it's something he's already done. He wanted to make people aware of Russian grievances. Um, they feel that the, the whole last 30 years... Um, has been working against them to reduce their security as NATO gets closer and closer. He's frustrated with what's been going on with eastern Ukraine because an agreement was sort of reached uh, February 
2015, which has never been implemented. But of course, a lot of these problems are of his own making. He didn't need to encourage the uh, the rebellion, separatism in, in eastern Ukraine in 2014. And a lot of the uh, NATO enlargement was demand led by countries that are very worried about Russian intentions. And nothing he's done recently has discouraged them in that belief. So he's got his grievances on the table. Uh, he, he Then the next step up would be to try to get a grip on Eastern Ukraine by consolidating the, the position there, possibly taking a bit more territory. Uh, he, he then just creates a new border, in a sense, for himself. Uh, whether this achieves a lot uh, is unclear because it certainly loses forever the rest of Ukraine. Uh, there's no no bargaining position left. I just don't believe he believe he can put a puppet government in Kiev. Uh, I mean, you've got to be pretty ignorant of contemporary military history to believe that, that uh, that's a serious possibility. You send lots of troops in, and, and maybe you can force something in, in Kiev, but as soon as they leave, you lose that. And if they stay, you've got to have a massive occupation force. I just don't believe that. How important is that? You mentioned moving the border, even just a bit not up to Kiev. How important is that to him? When I interviewed him over dinner at his residence years ago, about 2007, exactly these issues appear to be on his mind then, the, the alleged expansion of NATO and this consuming desire to retrieve the land that the Soviet Union had controlled. How important do you think that that sheer possession of even a bit more territory is? I think it's a source of irritation and frustration to him. In 2007, when you spoke, he, he made a, a quite memorable speech to the Munich Security Conference where he laid out these grievances uh, for the first time for a Western audience pretty forcefully. So I think that there's a defensive grievance that we keep on uh, encouraging popular movements in the uh, in these neighbouring countries, former parts of the Soviet Union, and this means that they're sort of good autocrats are put at risk. So there's a defensive thing which is still there. I think he wishes to resist. He's talked about Novorussia, the, the, the idea that uh, there's a great chunk of territory that was acquired by Catherine the Great that at, at the very least might come back to Russia. But it's hard to believe he, he, he really believes he's got a method of doing that. I, I, mm. I suspect if he does something, it'll be... I mean, there are, there are things that he could usefully do if you don't think about the politics too hard mm. in terms of joining up Crimea with the Donbass and so on. But I yeah. think it's, it's that sort of area that we're really realistically talking about. And do you think we in the West are guilty of underestimating Russia or taking our eye off Putin? I remember a former defence minister saying to me at the time when Russia moved into Syria to, to help prop up uh, Bashar Assad, we took a peace dividend that we shouldn't have done after the fall of the Soviet Union. I think it's difficult with Russia because, by all rights, it shouldn't be very powerful anymore. It's, I mean, it's, you know, people always point out that this GDP is, is closer to Spain. It's, it's much smaller than ours, France's, Germany's, etc. Uh, he's got a lot of military power and he's prepared to use it. He's made himself a major player in the Middle East. So, yeah, uh, and he's hostile to the West. I mean, he thinks we've done badly to him and he's looking for ways to push back. You know, there's a major cyber attack on Ukraine not long, a few days ago. Uh, we know he's wages information war against us. I think we've got to keep it all in perspective, though. Uh, he, there's a lot of activity here. A lot of it is un ineffectual. 
uh, it doesn't actually have the effect that he may want it to have. Yeah. So we have a, a Russia problem that, that, that needs addressing. And I'm all in favour of talking to him in diplomacy to try to ease that down. So we can't ignore him. We have to take him into account. But it's important not, not to sort of turn him into some great strategic genius uh, because he isn't. He's made some really bad missteps. And even when he's, he's acted, he's got his, he's sort of stuck. Uh, he's stuck in the Donbass, and he's stuck in Syria, for that matter. Uh, you know, his man's in power, but his man would be out of power, probably if he didn't have Russian support. So thanks very much for that perspective, which is incredibly valuable. Kath, let's just bring in the Westminster perspective on this. Boris Johnson criticised Keir Starmer for focusing on the Grey report rather than Ukraine. Does international crisis trump domestic crisis, or is that just what beleaguered prime ministers would like? I mean, yes, in a sense, it is what he would would like. You know, there's been a lot of push, obviously, from supporters of of Johnson arguing that Partygate is frivolous compared to Ukraine. And and yes, I mean, obviously, a major international crisis is a huge issue. The key thing is, I mean, I don't think Labour have a very different position from the government. There's not, you know, the urgent need for scrutiny, whereas... Obviously, Partygate, we're talking about parties, but it isn't about that. It is about, you know, standards at the very top of government. It's a major inquiry into the prime minister, accusations of misleading parliament. So it is a huge issue. Uh, So I don't think it's entirely fair to sort of imply that it means that Labour don't care about stuff like that. I think it's more just the the fact that, uh, you know, the Ukraine stuff is going to continue regardless of what the you know, Keir Starmer stands up at PMQs and says, and and Labour aren't going to push them that much on that. I think if hostilities actually broke out, obviously we would see a very different situation on the domestic front. And do you get a sense that Labour, under the uh, the Keir Starmer incarnation, um, is perfectly willing to criticise uh, President Putin, Moscow, in a way that perhaps Jeremy Corbyn's Labour was less so? Uh, yes, I guess so. We, you know, we never saw Corbyn quite in this kind of position, but pushing back on his relationship on the foreign policy front was, uh, you know, that was obviously an area where a lot of people were very critical of him. And it is an area that actually Labour have been trying to rebuild themselves in terms of perception of patriotism, of, you know, seriousness on the world stage and, and all these kinds of, of things. So, whether or not, you know, I mean, certainly Corbyn's team would probably push back against that idea, but the public had a perception of Jeremy Corbyn being compromised on some of these issues. And so, yes, here it would definitely seems to want to present a different issue. He's just not doing it at the moment on, on Ukraine specifically. Mm, that's a good way of putting it. Alex, this is going to be a big test for the Foreign Office, isn't it? The Foreign Office, which has gone through various incarnations of itself, now merged with the Development Department. One of the big tests for Britain in the world after Brexit. Do you think the Foreign Office is up to it? Yeah, it's been a it's been a rocky uh, year or two for the Foreign Office. I mean, any as you implied there, any you know merger of departments creates uh, disruption and comes with a cost, and it also comes in the context again, as you implied, of a, a sense of long term decline, uh, re- reduction in funding, uh, reduction in sort of status, if you like, of the Foreign Office. I mean, I think uh, I get a sense that over the last week or so, there's been a grinding of gears and the you know the the, the Whitehall Westminster apparatus has got itself going perhaps more than it did before. It was striking that in the early phase of the, um, is it a crisis or not? I don't know. I've got Lawrence's sort of very uh, sage wisdom ringing in my ears. But um, in, the, in, in the early phases of this episode, at least, it was a lot of the running was made by the Ministry of Defence. That was, you know, 
one sense perfectly reasonable, but it was striking the Foreign Office was less present. I think now the, uh, particularly with activity in the US, now the diplomatic apparatus is uh, gearing up and it's uh, firmly in Liz Truss's interest, partly perhaps as a leadership contender, but also to consolidate her status as Foreign Secretary for the UK, perhaps as it, as it hasn't in some of the recent past, to play an active role in that, uh, in that diplomacy. Lawrence, what about these alliances the West needs to present a coherent front on this? How united is Europe? More so probably than you might suspect from some of the commentary. I mean, you've got two things going on. One, you've got Macron wishing to present a more dynamic, forward-looking, autonomous Europe and seeing the crisis possibly as one way to do it, but hasn't really diverted from the general NATO view on what Putin's doing is is wrong uh, and needs to be resisted. Germany more divided with the, with the new coalition finding its feet. If the foreign, um, also with a, with a female foreign secretary who who's be, been pretty tough on Russia, but but social democrat chancellery who's more important, less tough. So you've got those divisions, questions about Biden after Afghanistan, but actually the West has held up reasonably well. Um, There hasn't been any sort of crumbling. Nobody expects Western countries to actually go and fight in Ukraine. You know, the the war is one that would be between Ukraine and Russia, should it take place. And so it's largely a question of what support you get. And and, and I think also we are on a more diplomatic track. I think the UK contribution may have been harmed by the distraction of the Prime Minister. But actually Ben Wallace and Liz Truss have been playing a pretty forward role. And one of the odd things about this crisis is uh, um, you know, the Ukrainians are full of praise for the Brits and a lot of Northern Europeans as well. As crises go, it hasn't been managed badly as yet, but obviously the test is in is a final outcome. Another interesting aspect of this, I think, and I'm not sure what Lawrence's take is on it, but this is a good uh, Institute for Government point, is uh, it's one of the first really major tests for the integrated review that the government published just under a year ago. I think there's been some criticism that uh, it shows that the integrated review was, uh, you know, got got things wrong because it was tilting towards cyber and different types of warfare. And this is very much a kind of boots and tanks on the ground sort of issue. Although uh, I think I'd be, I'd give the government a little bit more um, uh, leeway on that because this sort of, you know, cyber and different forms of conflict are, are playing a large part in this crisis. So it's, it, it is a really interesting illustration of the tensions that the Integrated Review was trying to straddle uh, and uh, very hard for the government to kind of pick a side on that. The Integrated Review was still pretty clear that Europe is the focus for our security concerns uh, and the Indo-Pacific region is more important but secondary. And it's worth noting on the cyber side that it, it was... The British and the and the Americans who uh, provided support to the Ukrainians when they suffered uh, a cyber attack from the Russians uh, a week or so ago. So uh, I, I think this is perfectly in line with the um, with, with the integrated review. Uh, as I say, I mean, the, as if, the, if things don't escalate much beyond where we are at the moment, it'll all be seen as being a, a pretty good. Uh, test which which we came through it's when you get to the next stage of escalation that you start to worry in the end a lot of this is about the rule of law um i mean this is why we criticize autocrats 
and why we consider our system superior. This is a this is a chance for us to show that we take the rule of law seriously, even when um, uh, our prime minister is in question. So, in that sense, I think there's there's quite a fundamental link. Other than that, I think the idea that you can't change prime ministers or have votes of confidence or whatever just because there's a crisis going on. Does this, you know, if you look at British history, we, we, there's no reason why one should, should impact on the other. I don't think British policy depends uh, on who the prime minister is at the moment. As was mentioned before, there's quite a national consensus on it, given that the opposition is generally supportive of where we are. And, Kath, on that point about whether you can tra- change a prime minister at a mm. point of crisis, do you think this protects Boris Johnson or doesn't? No, I mean, it's certainly g- giving, uh, you know, it's another part of the arsenal of arguments that his supporters over the course of the last week have been utilising. I mean, there's that and various arguments about we should be focusing on other domestic issues like cost of living or arguing that there would have to be a general election if we changed the prime minister. So it's yet more sort of arguments from them of don't change any leadership at the top. But I do agree with with Lawrence that Actually, times of crisis, you know, we have some very notable changes of prime ministers in both uh, world wars and, uh, you know, on the eve of the first Gulf War when when Thatcher went. The question is whether actually it works in the reverse and it focuses minds on, you know, we need stability because the, the, the reverse argument is also true of how much is this distracting the prime minister, distracting number 10 by this, I mean, obviously, um, party gates, the impending report and so forth. If he's spending so many hours meeting MPs, is he giving the Ukraine crisis, you know, the, the attention that it needs? That might be working out well if, if the MOD and the FCDO are the people who are focusing on it and taking the lead. I don't think it entirely stacks up as an argument. Back to Sue Gray. Still not published, and now the Metropolitan Police are going in. Alex, Twitter was in a frenzy all week predicting that the report was imminent, and then somehow it wasn't. Um, what do we think is going on? Well, uh, I mean, let's see, and who knows quite what will have happened by the time people uh, listen to this. But as of you know, Friday morning, um, it seems reasonably clear that the report was uh, ready there or thereabouts earlier this week. Uh, it was about to uh, be sent to number 10 and the Prime Minister to have a look at for a few hours before being published. Then through the week, uh, Cressida Dick, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, stepped in uh, and said that the Met was going to investigate a number of these gatherings or parties. And that seems to have kicked off uh, quite a confusing dance between the Met, the Cabinet Office and Number 10 over exactly what this means for Sue Gray's uh, report. The moment the police get in, civil servants get very uh, get involved in anything like this. Civil servants get very nervous and very twitchy. And so the news just this morning that the Met had asked there to be minimal reference, to quote their statement, to the parties that they're investigating has sent uh, a certain Twitter into even more of a frenzy about you know, conspiracies between uh, the Cabinet Office and the Met and uh, what this means for the Prime Minister being able to spin this out for longer or, or not. My personal take on this, I mean, let's see where it goes. I don't know exactly what's happening between the Cabinet Office and the Met, but I would be surprised if there was some sort of conscious agreement to spin this out. I do think, as I said, 
civil service lawyers and uh, officials do get twitchy they may you know they will be concerned about not necessarily prejudicing a jury trial or some further criminal questions for the prime minister or anybody else although that is possible that uh, the police could look into misconduct in public office or some other offence but more about putting a you know an authoritative statement on the record from Sue Gray about what's happened and then that just disrupting uh, the uh, chance for the police to investigate. But let's see. I mean, is it really necessary for the police, uh, the, the sheer fact of a police investigation, which is probably going to amount to fines? As you said, it could open up uh, more, more, more serious questions, I guess. But all that has been discussed so far is really the question of, of fines. Is, is it really necessary for the police to excise what looks like being the, the meat, the most serious bits of this report? The question I would ask is not quite, is it really necessary? Is it really necessary? Possibly not. But is it sufficient for, particularly given that the Met have said this, for civil servants then and uh, uh, you know others to become very cautious about what they put out? I think the Met having made this request, it's very hard then for the civil service to, to ignore it. And the Met saying basically want to try and keep things as clean as possible is not terribly surprising to me. I suppose the balance of risk, if you like, is this has become such a huge question for the confidence that people have in the government, truth, honesty of the prime minister and the rule of law, that the institutional bias towards caution might in this instance not be not be justified. I suppose that's what you're that's what you're getting at. But I can see in process terms why we've got where we've got to. Kath, doesn't this give number 10 exactly what it wants whether intentional or not or the result of conversations or 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 not it gets the serious stuff excised kicked down the line albeit in the hands of the police meanwhile we've heard that the sue gray may have taken out uh, stuff to protect junior officials feeling that they shouldn't be in the spotlight that the blame should go you know on, on more senior people so you've lost stuff from top and bottom it's all being delayed possibly the police go on for months isn't this exactly what number 10 wants I mean, yes, in terms of their current strategy, but whether or not it in the end makes a difference, you know, we still don't know because it all comes down to what MPs think about this. And the other thing to remember is this means that this week we have had the Metropolitan Police saying that they are investigating, you know, rule breaking in number 10. So the the, the question that we asked, you know, very early on when this investigation was launched, did they break their own rules over conducting these parties, you know, that seems like it might be reached because the Met said they had a very high threshold for even starting to investigate this. So if Conservative MPs feel that that is not acceptable and feel that the Prime Minister's responses saying that there was no breaches of guidance and and so forth in his answers to Parliament are not acceptable, then it still looks like there's a, you know, there's a chance that we end up in that sort of position. So The more important thing, I think, for number 10 is that their fight back about that, which is largely now based around, yes, this went on, but he's still the right guy to back. You know, politically, you want to keep him in place. It's not the right time for a change of prime minister. He can still, you know, win this. And here are all the policies that we're going to do. And here's the way in which we can change. So it's given him more time for that counter argument now that the narrative has sort of moved on. Um, and that defence. So it's really, it's more about the sentencing now rather than the crime itself, if you see what I mean. And yes, if there is more space, that might give them more time. But it may be that Conservative MPs have already made their mind up. They're just waiting for the Sue Gray reports to act. And people, voters, citizens of this country may yeah. have put their mind up anyway. 
Yeah, and I think that's the other important thing. If you speak to lots of the experts on this stuff, I was talking to Will Jennings earlier this week, they tell you that voters have already made their minds up on this. They already believe that the government breached their own rules. What they're now waiting for is to see whether or not justice is done. So I think it's, it's you know, and it means that this is now priced into their view of Boris Johnson. Uh, it's very difficult to come back from something like this. Whether that means that, you know, it is entirely unlikely to win a majority, the everything's in favour of him at the next election still. So it's more about then whether or not it's a much reduced majority and whether they could do better with somebody else. There's all these sorts of questions that are, you know, floating around Westminster at the moment. But in terms of the public's mind, yeah, they have made up their minds on this. Mm. I think the question now is whether the Conservative Party as a whole do more damage to themselves in the course of how they resolve this. Lawrence, you were part of the Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war. What do you feel about this row about what is going to be, how much should be in the published Sue Gray report? Uh, well, to the first on, on junior officials, we also didn't give the names of junior officials. That doesn't mean to say you can't talk about what they said and did. You just don't put their names in. And I think that's probably very, a very important point. Yep. Yeah. Um, secondly, it, you just sort of sigh when the Met gets involved in these things. First, they didn't investigate themselves. Then they let Sue Gray do all the heavy lifting uh, and find out all the stuff they need to know. And then they say, well, you know, can we take the evidence, please, and, uh, and draw our own conclusions? And therefore, please don't publish what you were absolutely on the verge of publishing. We're talking about fixed penalty notices. I mean, the misconduct in public office is a, is, a, is, a, is a possibility. I find it very strange myself. I mean, this wasn't an issue that Chilcot faced. But I think there is a problem with a, with a redacted report. If all the meat's been taken out, then you're going to be left with generalities and, and people are going to feel that, you know, the accusation that Chilcot faced until we actually published was that this is all really about whitewashing and, and the establishment looking after itself. I'm sure that isn't Sue Gray's intent, but that's the risk. So lots of other reputations are now on the risk because of this confusing interaction between the Met and the Cabinet Office, as well as the government. I think that the, the, the basic problem for for the Prime Minister is with the Met, I mean, in the sense that if it is the case, I mean, there's a question of whether he himself would get a fixed penalty notice or his wife, but there's certainly likelihood that uh, many of those close to him would. So all the denials he made earlier don't, don't look very good. Well, we'll definitely be coming back to that one. But I want to use that as a reason to talk about the third thing that uh, we have been talking about this week, which is the coronavirus. And in its way, a good news story, a story the government would probably like to be talking about, because this week Plan B has come to an end, no more guidance to work from home, no more mandatory face masks. And the government say we can now start planning a path towards some sort of normality. Alex, did Boris Johnson make the right call? Yes, I think he did. We can say that the, the sort of the Omicron strategy for all that it was definitely not cost free and it is easy to overlook the fact that the death numbers are still in a pretty high has been a success. I mean, our colleague Tom Sass wrote a great piece earlier in the week, uh, effectively saying, yes, this is the right call, but let's uh, not get too carried away with sort of freedom days or treating this as a major sort of one-off liberation. Proceed uh, cautiously. 
the temptation for the government obviously is to sort of declare mission accomplished and move on. And I think it's important that that's not the overall message. I think the, the other point to make is there still seems to me to be a bit of a lack of guidance. So we're moving, I think, from a world where uh, there are, you know, as we've been talking about with gatherings and parties, um, legally enforceable uh, rules to one where the government should be providing much clearer guidance than has been the case so far, whether that's around, you know, people gathering, whether you should wear face masks in particular situations, or when it comes to it, ending of uh, self-isolation requirements. Sajid Javid has said that the government is working this up, giving as soon as possible a sense of what uh, life is going to be like with COVID and the Omicron variant as endemic, if that's the word you want to use, uh, and 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 the way the government will manage that would be very helpful in terms of giving a, a sense of how the you know, how all our, our lives are going to be over the course of the next year or two. Kat, so just picking up that point, uh, coronavirus is not gone. What mm. decisions does the government have to make in in the weeks ahead? The biggest one for them is about mandatory isolation, because remember, this was brought in um, through, you know, a variety of different laws, all of which have um, some degree of, you know, they have to keep being passed in Parliament, kept up to date. And in late March, that's when they end. And the government's we saw before Christmas had quite sizable rebellions rather. Um, they managed to get it passed with Labour support on some of the COVID restrictions they brought in to deal with Omicron. So there is a big section in the Conservative Party that is quite reluctant to keep using the force of the law and, and having heavy restrictions in place. So we're getting indications that the government want to, for instance, stop mandatory isolation, the idea that if you test positive for COVID, you need to isolate yourselves uh, for a period of time. It's now five days if you end up testing positive by uh, testing negative by the end of it. So, OK, fine, they want to do that. And, and ultimately, yes, we, you know, with other dise- uh, other viruses, other diseases, whatever, we don't have that in place. But I think you've got to convey to the public what that means. The threat isn't nil. People will be very concerned if they think that people are wandering around with COVIDs and you can't tell if there's not use of masks. That's a sort of another big problem. So it's, as Alex says, and as, as Tom argued earlier in the week, it's about explaining to the public, well, if not that, what are we supposed to be doing here? So there are other other things that they could do, one of which is keep free lateral flow tests. The more expensive PCR tests might stop being used, but the lateral flows are a much cheaper way of of getting a a rough indication for the public and would allow them to sort of, and, and for businesses to think about what their own COVID policy is in the workplace. Should people stay at home if they get any kind of sickness? Should we change our, our behavior more generally around that because of the, the risks of COVID? As, as Alex says, guidance, you know, appreciate it. That's Tom Sass, you were referring to our excellent yes. um, associate director who writes about policy making. We're a think tank of many Toms. Um, <laughs> Alex, it, it, coronavirus has been in, you know, dominating Whitehall for a couple of years, and, and like Brexit before. Lots of new units set up, new strategies, lots of lessons. I hope we don't use the word learnings at the IFG. How does Whitehall keep all that while moving on to new things? Yeah, it's a good good question, and one that you know the temptation will be to sort of move on as as quickly as possible and uh, try and put the last two years behind us, uh, assuming we're able to, of course, and we don't get, God forbid, new variants and things. It's quite easy to quite sort of superficially say, "Oh, we've learnt all these things from this crisis. Let's let's apply them to day to day policy making or uh, the way government works." And I think there's some truth to that. But one of the first things that you need to do is recognise that 
when you move out of the pandemic, out of a crisis period, the context has changed very significantly. So the way that you act in a crisis, command and control, top down, rapid decision making needs to change into a more sort of persuasive, consensual style. So I think there's there's something about saying, yes, we've we've learned lots of things about how government works, but we need to apply those in quite a different context now. But then there are specific points. I mean, I think this is as much from Brexit as from COVID, but the government's approach of using cabinet committees, a strategy committee to set the direction, and then an operations committee that builds in civil servants as well as ministers to actually make the thing happen um, is a a good lesson. I think some of the lessons that, that came from early in the crisis when central government was really fragmented and, and separate from local government and other tiers of government and relationships got very bad in, in those first six months or so. Uh, I think that's a really important lesson uh, for the government. I mean, I, I, I could go on and on, but I think that th- those are the sorts of things that you need to embed into, uh, into normal government practice. Okay. Well, there are times and places when I will ask you to go on and on. <laughs> this isn't one of the... Uh, Lawrence, I, we were just talking about inquiries earlier. Well, I, mean, I was going to say that there's, there's an inquiry that, that's, that's already to... Well, not already to go hasn't agreed its terms of reference yet, uh, hasn't got its full membership yet, it's got its chair. I mean, so, you know, we're not going to get away from, from the COVID experience because there's going to be a lot of uh, inquiry activity around it. The, the Scots doing their own inquiry as well. So those of us who know all about inquiries are going to be kept quite busy for a while. Yeah. And given you do know all about inquiries, and, and, and as you said, we're on a very long but in the end, very good, very well-received one. What do you think the really important decisions are in setting this up? Well, I, I think you've got to recognise that this has got to be very different from any sort of inquiry we've had in the past. First, it can be totally transparent. We're not dealing with official secrets. Here. Secondly, there are so many different uh, aspects and streams of activity that you have to have sort of an umbrella inquiry, I think, with... Uh, different uh, groups doing different pieces of work with regular reporting, back interim reports. You don't have to wait for some grand judgment right at the end. You know, what inquiries do is 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 do lots of research. Well, you know, there's masses of research already gone on in this area, so I would hope they would have a sort of a good research team or in place just getting hold of all the material that's there and making sense of it and synthesising it and so on. So I think you need to reimagine a bit how how an inquiry works. Uh, if we just try to do this by evidence sessions presided over by the judge, I mean, this will uh, you know, be going for another 20 years. Just on this point, just slightly changing subject, but I would love to know your own view about whether there should be an inquiry into Afghanistan. We had one into Iraq, now we're having one into coronavirus, both very very much justified. Uh, this very long, uh, and in the end, the exit very controversial. Why why doesn't that get an inquiry? Well, you know, <laughs> there are so many things. Uh, I mean... There are. Yeah, Chilcot, Chilcot did actually look a bit at that period um, in, in uh, sort of 2006 to, to eight, where we shifted from... Iraq to Afghanistan, and one of the, uh, and you know, we raised stuff more. We, we had more stuff than, than than was used because it wasn't wholly appropriate. But there are issues then about having been through a pretty grim experience already in Iraq. Why we decided to do, we could do the same thing again, uh, and the extent to which there was an institutional interest of the 
of the army in particular about showing that this time they would get it right. Uh, so I think there are questions that, that are worth looking at, which a number of historians have already have already mm-hmm. looked at. That's different from the shambles of last summer, but that's largely for the Americans. So, I mean, I'm all in favour of, of throwing as much light on these things, but I suspect it would be quite a difficult inquiry to give a focus to, and I'm not sure what it would find out that, that, that we don't really already know. All right. Well, we don't have time to go into that now, but leaking into the, my question, maybe in my own view, which is that one is justified, partly looking at the evidence that has come out in the in the US um, in front of Congress already about the mistakes made very early on. But that is another topic. And uh, Lawrence, maybe, maybe we'll be back to discuss that at some point. Um, but with that, we are going to have to wrap up another episode of Inside Briefing, a very ambitious week that covered lots of things. My huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Alex Thomas, and especially Sir Lawrence Friedman. Brilliant that you could be with us. Thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a review too. Publish in full, please. And do check out our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, for all our latest work. We've got two big reports out next week, including Whitehall Monitor, our annual stock-taking on the size, shape and work of government. See you next week, when we'll definitely be discussing the fallout of the published Sue Gray report. Well, probably. And we hope we won't be discussing the actual invasion of Ukraine. Thank you very much. See you next week. Thank you.